When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Among foreign observers, 17th century England was known as Devil Land, a land of diabolic king killers, a failed state, a place of religious extremism and seditious rebellion. Which is to say that looking from the perspective of foreigners, offers a brand new way to see the Stuart century. This new way in is the brainchild of Dr. Claire Jackson, senior tutor at Trinity College, Cambridge, who joins me to talk about her research for her book of the same name, Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588-1688. to This is a tale of dynasties and diplomacy, the grand sweep of political history from the Spanish Armada to the Glorious Revolution. Dr. Jackson, I am delighted to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. And this is very much Not Just the Tudors. Today we are <laughs> moving on from the Tudors, but starting with them. In fact, the first thing I want to say is that I love the fact that in this book you have kind of challenged conventional ideas of periodization, the Tudors and then the Stuarts. And I'm so struck by the fact whenever I've taught a period that sort of overlaps the two centuries, as it were, you can see the cast of historians changing at 1603, you know. And so the fact that you've done this, that you've conceived of the importance of this overlapping century, bounded at one end by an unsuccessful foreign invasion, and at the other by an invitation to a foreigner to invade, I think is fascinating. What gave you the idea? Well, thank you very much for having me. There is a very neat parallel between 1588, an unsuccessful seaborne invasion, and 1688, a successful seaborne invasion. And contemporaries drew a lot of significance in that century. They wanted to sort of see some providential tale that the Catholic Armada had been defeated, but the Protestant Armada was successful. It was helped as well by the fact that William landed in Devon in 1688 on the 5th of November, which by then had also assumed providential significance as being the anniversary of the gunpowder plot. So contemporaries themselves were very used to sort of seeing anniversaries and reading meaning into them. You know, another hundred years later, it was precisely the anniversary of 1688 that was coming that prompted Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France to say, no, no, the French Revolution is not like our revolutions. So some of it was taking a cue from contemporaries. But more than that, it was perhaps a frustration as a Stuart historian, having always taught 17th century history in England, that one often reads these throwaway comments that, you know, James was just a new, inexperienced king. And having started 
my career as a historian of Scotland. I knew that wasn't true and that, you know, this is someone who has been on the throne as an adult king for 20 years in Scotland, but has actually been on the throne for 40 years in Scotland. And he may have been a new king of England, but he's anything but kind of inexperienced. But again, it was really contemporaries. I had often been struck when I was studying an event like the regicide in 1649 of Charles I, which was shocking both at home, but particularly abroad. But over it always hovered this ghost of Mary, Queen of Scots. This was the sort of thing that the English did. And a lot of French are very quick to point out, well, you know, what can one expect from this diabolical state? This is the state that executed Charles I's grandmother. Only at least then they had the decency to do it behind closed doors in 1587. So the book really begins with that moment of Mary, Queen of Scots' execution and then goes on for the next 100 years. That's really interesting. And you've given the book a very arresting title, which actually, on closer inspection, sets your intention for it. I mean, this is no parochial history of England. So can you please explain the title and also what it reveals about your approach to studying the history of England in this period? The title comes from contemporaries Devilland. Deufeland is what a hostile Dutch pamphleteer called England in 1652. And it was playing on a traditional Latin joke that the English, the Angli, should be cherished as cherubic angels, angeli. And by 1652, the Dutch were insisting that the English were anything but angels. They were diabolical devils. Three years earlier, they'd put their divinely ordained king on trial. They had publicly executed him. The new regime's Republican leaders seemed defiantly unrepentant. And even worse, they were now contemplating declaring war on the Dutch. So it was a term of abuse. And it also, as you say, gestures towards the broader theme of the book, which is very much how foreigners see England in the 17th century. So if we think about the arrival of this very experienced king from Scotland into England to become James I of England, already being James VI of Scotland, one thing you draw out is that foreign observers were astonished that this was so peacefully done, that they had expected this theatre of bloody and horrible tragedy. Why did they anticipate that and why did it not occur? I think the other thing to be careful when approaching this is also not too much hindsight. This is something that people have been fearing the whole way through the 1590s. We now know, you know, Elizabeth died age 69 in 1603, but that was considerably older than most of her Tudor forebears. And I think a lot of contemporary Europe, it's hard to know what people were thinking in England because they weren't allowed to discuss the succession. But certainly in the continent, people were expecting Elizabeth to die perhaps at any point in the 1590s and the country to be plunged into immediate civil war. I may be in a minority, but I am not a great fan of Elizabeth on the question of not making provision for the succession and actually, you know, making it a capital crime to discuss the succession in any way, you know, effectively imposing a complete blanket silence on this. What that did was encourage lots of speculation and commentary abroad and probably the most significant intervention into that succession debate that took place the whole way through the 1590s was a book written by an English-born Jesuit, Robert Persons, the conference about the next succession in England. And it just fills the vacuum. It's smuggled into England, but it fills the vacuum of discussion. And Persons points out that there are around about 10 to 12 individuals who would have a claim to succeed Elizabeth, a hereditary claim. And ostensibly neutrally, he then sort of evaluates all of the claims to come down in favour of the Spanish infanta, the Archduchess Isabella, Philip II's daughter. And that's to serve his Catholic interests. And James, in the end, 
finds this quite a helpful intervention because it then gives him something very robust to assert his, as he would see it, much stronger hereditary claim to succeed Elizabeth. And then actually there's such a shock value to Persons' assertion that when Elizabeth dies, we're all going to be ruled by a Habsburg that actually support solidifies around James. But one thing that James has done very skillfully through the 1590s is keep Catholic Europe on board. He does maintain diplomatic relations with Catholic states in the way that Elizabeth I doesn't. He does have Catholic lords within his close circle. He is not a man known for you know, religious persecution. And it's completely in his interests to reassure Catholic powers that if he does succeed Elizabeth, Catholics in England have nothing to worry about, that he's not going to be hell-bent on persecuting them in the way that they've been persecuted previously. Mm, that's very interesting. I'm actually completely with you about Elizabeth I and the sheer arrogance and lack of responsibility in not nominating an heir, you know, après moi la deluge. She just doesn't care what happens after her. And I think it's also very interesting. Someone was just talking to me about the book that inspired Barack Obama, a team of rivals about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and how he gathered around him himself a group of people who had different points of view. And it seems like James absolutely had that idea about council already at this stage. Yes, I think one of the difficulties for James, though, is he's so skilled and instinctively inclined to gathering a range of opinions, is that he then creates quite a lot of maybe misplaced expectations when he comes to the throne. Catholics hear all of this rhetoric of tolerance and see in him the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who is fast acquiring this sort of posthumous status as a martyr. There's also rumours that are founded, that his Danish Lutheran wife is no longer a Lutheran and has covertly converted to Catholicism. You know, there are a lot of reasons why Catholics look towards James's succession with optimism, and then that optimism, you know, is frustrated. But so too do many of those who wish for greater reform in the English church. You know, they look to Scottish Presbyterianism and they think James is coming from an ecclesiastical world in which we would like to see the English church move, whereas actually James is quite tempted by the English church's hierarchy of bishops and archbishops. So the Puritans are a little bit frustrated as well. And I think that is probably a casualty of James's interest in lively debate and a range of views. That's interesting because you're suggesting that exactly what made him palatable as a monarch is what would make him disappointing in due course. For most constituencies, yes. You know, he was very attractive for many of these people as the successor to Elizabeth. And he also just had the basic credentials. You know, he's male, he's Protestant, he's got three children that have survived infancy. You know, the English court gains a functioning royal family for the first time in over half a century. And that also brings sort of diplomatic interest. But it is the sort of fact that once he's on the throne, he doesn't seem to want to do anything about the framework of recusancy legislation that Elizabeth has erected. He's got a son called Henry, which is bad for Catholics. It looks to Catholics now as though actually there's not going to be any change with the Stuarts, that something much more radical is now needed and the gunpowder plot is conceived. Now, your point about not using hindsight is useful in terms of thinking about how the Scottish would have been perceived at the time, because they are very much a foreign dynasty as far as the English are concerned. How do the English view the arrival of this Stuart monarch in that sense of his nationality? I think that's an understudied point in history. I mean, it's not just that the Scots are foreign. You know, they're a traditional enemy. It is not that long since the rough wooing and other armed hostilities. Most of Scotland's diplomatic, political 
commercial ties for a long while had been with France. And obviously the Reformation had been a major rupture there. But I think the English would just prefer not to remember that James is Scottish. From James's perspective, you know, acquiring England is a great boost to the House of Stuart. So he's very keen to make the most of basing himself in London. What the English haven't bargained for is that James brings with him an assumption that the natural progression of his regal union is a political union. So James comes assuming that the English will very quickly sign up to his British vision and that it's partly self-interest from James's point of view. You know, he wants to secure the succession in his children. He knows he can't just do that through Parliament, through sort of legislation or anything, because Henry VIII had managed to pass legislation precluding the Stuarts. He needs something really more transformative to try and make sure that the English and Scottish crowns are permanently united. And there's a real lack of English enthusiasm in this project. And I think that also is another reason that disillusionment sort of quickly sets in. And so I suppose we could add to that the fact, as you've mentioned, we've got Anna of Denmark. We go on to have Henrietta Maria and due course sometime later, Catherine of Braganza. So we also have consuls who are very certainly foreign. What role do you perceive these queens to have played in the politics and diplomacy of the period? An underestimated one to date, probably. There's been really interesting recent research by you know, people like Helen Payne, Maureen Meikle on Anna of Denmark, you know, who I think you know, really did bear the condescension of posterity. I mean, was often sort of dismissed as a sort of woman who was only interested in jewels and costumes. And actually, you know, this is somebody who could read and write fluently in large number of languages, who was the daughter, wife and sister of different kings and who had enormous diplomatic contacts through her Oldenburg house, siblings and an extended family. And the same is obviously true for Henrietta Maria. She is a daughter of Henry IV of France, who brings all of the Bourbon dynastic links as well. And the same is true. So I think queens have been underestimated. I mean, Henrietta Maria is a very good example in the 1630s when diplomatic relations between the papacy and England are re-established for the first time since the Reformation. And the first papal envoy is accredited not to Charles's court, but to Henrietta Maria's court, effectively suggesting that the queen is a whole separate avenue of diplomatic influence. There's a book that's coming out very soon by Nadine Ackerman looking at Elizabeth Stewart. So there are people starting to do this kind of work, which is so important. Oh, and Nadine's editions of Elizabeth's correspondence is just terrific. And one of the things I've tried to do in Devil Land is reintegrate the Palatine family, not quite as a sort of prince étrangère or, you know, one of these sort of semi-sovereign dynasties that caused such internal trouble in France. But for the first really, certainly until the birth of Charles II, but arguably thereafter. You know, Elizabeth and her line are the family to whom the crown will fall. And one of the things I've tried to do in Devil Land as well is sort of emphasise the precarity of dynastic history. You know, the big shock for the Stuarts is the death of Prince Henry in 1612. I mean, this is the person who's been deliberately groomed by Charles, prepared for kingship, to whom he's written a manual of kingship, in whom, you know, a lot of Protestants who want their monarch to play a more interventionist role on the continent have sort of placed all of their hopes. There's a sort of militant image that grows up around Henry. And when he dies, he leaves his sickly, frail, younger brother, Charles, as the heir. But of course, if anything goes wrong with Charles, then it is Elizabeth, who has made a very Protestant marriage to the elector Palatine Frederick. 
She is briefly Queen of Bohemia, but then is ejected from that, but also bears you know, a very large number of children. And eventually it is the Palatine branch, of course, in 1714 that eventually replaced the Stuarts. It is a descendant of Elizabeth. But I think we tend to sort of leap from Elizabeth getting married in 1613 to then 100 years later, George I acceding, without remembering that you know, during the civil wars, for example, Prince Rupert and Prince Morris fight in Charles I's royalist forces for their uncle. Rupert is you know, one of the more prominent royalist commanders. But their older brother, Charles Louis, accepts Parliament's invitation to come and install himself in his uncle's lodgings and work with Parliament. So just as the civil war divides families across England, it also divided the Stuarts right at the heart of their own dynasty. That's a wonderful sense of context. So can we talk about some of the sort of nuts and bolts of the structural problems that the Stuarts faced? I'm always struck by the fact that the king should live of his own in financial terms, basically always been theoretical. If you look back to Henry VII binding his wealthiest subjects or Henry VIII dissolving the monasteries to live of his own, basically never had been done. So a question I guess I'm fascinated by is why the debates about money and war and parliament get so fraught in the early 17th century? I think the Stuarts themselves realised that this rhetoric of the king living off his own is outdated, that the demands on kingship are growing. I mean, actually just bringing a royal family with you and maintaining the kind of diplomatic presence that James is both used to in Scotland and then inaugurates in England you know, it's going to cost far more than Elizabeth's sort of parsimonious household accounting. And James is very sort of explicit with Parliament about if you want me to intervene in Europe's confessional wars, or if you want me to do all of this, it takes money. And there's a sort of moment where in 1610, you know, Salisbury forms the great contract. And this is a sort of attempt to try and put Crown Parliament finances onto at least a kind of model that could be sustainable. And then it sort of collapses. And that's probably the period in which James's kingship then becomes really quite dysfunctional after he loses his sort of closest political aid that he'd inherited from Elizabeth. And then he eventually just falls out with Parliament. And we always tend to think about Charles I's personal rule lasting 11 years, which want to forget that James also ruled without Parliament for seven years in the 16 teens. Charles II after the Civil Wars is equally aware that he's not a king often known for his prose, but he does deliver speeches to parliaments. We need to get this money thing sorted out. We can't keep holding each other hostages where I can't get the sort of things done and you can't get the sort of things done because neither of us will budge on money. And again, that doesn't really happen. So like his predecessors, he starts finding other alternatives like hoping that dowries will be sufficient from Catherine of Baganza or selling off Dunkirk or secret French subsidies from Louis XIV. What it takes in terms of why it changes is William and Mary's arrival. And if anything, probably William's lesser interest in English politics. I mean, for William, you know, his main reason for intervening in English politics is to get England on side against Louis Fourteenth to support the Dutch Republic. And the price for that is regular meetings of Parliament in the same way that, you know, he's used to working closely with the States General. So that's almost more of a sort of accidental outcome of William's intervention. Parliament starts working with a monarch regularly, and they also realise that Deficit financing is going to be required in times of war. So you don't have this idea that you can not only live off your own, but that everything will balance at the end of the year. So the Bank of England's founded. Deficit financing starts. Some of these models have been attempted in the 1650s. Cromwell is also trying to fund 
a more militarised state. So some of the taxes and models come then, but the real overhaul doesn't come to the 1690s. Mm, that's so interesting. And a sort of similarly big question, but you touched on it there and thinking about the sort of support for the Dutch Republic against the French, against Louis Fourteenth. And if you're writing a history that is drawn from many ambassadorial accounts and looking at foreign perspectives, of course, you're also kind of writing a shadow history of foreign relations in this period. And who's England's number one enemy flips and flops during these years? Is the history of foreign relations in this period guided primarily by religious allegiance or is it commercial rivalry or colonial competition? You know, what's uppermost? Well, I think one of the complexities and perhaps, you know, what doesn't make for a satisfactory answer is is that that always changes. And I don't think there is a consistent approach. And that's part of the reason that one sees often what appears quite incoherent, simultaneous policies. I mean, one thing I really wanted to do in the book was take diplomatic history seriously. I think for a long time, it's been seen as a slightly sort of outdated form of history or very narrowly conceived. But, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, there's a sort of new generation of, they would style themselves sort of new diplomatic historians who've really looked at diplomacy, you know, far more than the sort of old attack on what one foreign office clerk said to another, but actually thinking how much is conveyed in the theatricality of diplomacy. I mean, if diplomats really were, as they were perceived to be, you know, the literal personification of their monarch meeting another monarch I mean now we think about things like the G8 or COP20 we understand the theatricality of diplomacy and the importance of these kind of behind the scenes meetings as well as shared agreements and obviously that doesn't happen just in terms of communications in the 17th century but it absolutely happens in all of the audiences all of the theatre performances it's why a lot of detail like you know where somebody was sat at a dinner or what size coach they had or the order of the coaches might seem to us petty and really sort of irrelevant, but it absolutely mattered. I mean, if you really did believe that you were there with all of the authority as the personification of the French king, you expected your country to be treated in exactly that way. It's one of the difficulties of using diplomatic sources because they are inevitably subjective. I mean, there's a distortion and the book, it makes a polemical argument. I mean, it's absolutely not saying that these are accurate or sometimes even non-exaggerated accounts. But If one begins to see these diplomats calibrating the standing of their own country vis-a-vis that of England, you know, one gets very interesting sense of what it is about England that these foreign observers found alarming, mystifying, infuriating (laughs) or whatever. Mm, And it's certainly true that it brings into your account all that theatre that you talked about, the court etiquette or diplomatic ceremonial, and also moments of real danger, that incident that you described between the Spanish and the French delegations in September 1661, in which several Frenchmen and their horses are killed. I mean, it must have been very satisfying to be able to ground the kind of high level grand politics with these moments of individual drama, I suppose. Yes. And I think you know, the diplomats sort of, I think of the nature of the type of correspondence that they're engaging in. I mean, sometimes they are just moaning about never being paid and how expensive everything is in England and how nobody really understands. They can't understand England and nobody, their diplomatic masters can't understand England. There's a lot of moaning about there is no school in the world that could teach you how to negotiate with England. So this is just the sort of thing that is very uppermost in diplomats' minds. And the other difficulty is just communications. I mean, this is the first era of news really the 17th century the idea that there's foreign news that arrives in about the 1620s and then that creates a model that then works very well in the civil wars people get used to reporting news but there's always a time lag and there's always a suspicion of false news you diplomats themselves find that 
you know, sometimes their instructions are outdated and they can see things changing on the ground that make their instructions completely dangerous and risky and outdated. But on the other hand, you know, it's a treasonable offence to sort of change the instructions. So, you know, actually, I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for the 17th century diplomats who I think were really often doing a very, very difficult job and knowing that if it all went wrong, they would easily cop it rather than their sovereign. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Skipping forward slightly here, but towards the Civil War, as you just mentioned that, I think that we can easily have quite a sort of exceptionalist idea towards the British Civil War. And so, once again, the fact that you were putting this in the context of warfare across continental Europe at the time, or even actually indeed some kind of this is a period of global crisis in which we see the collapse of political authority in many places around the world, seemed really interesting. Again, why did you think that was important and what did you learn from doing that? I suppose they always say, if you want to know the history, know the historian. So, uh, you know, my interest in this started through the sort of new British histories, the move away from seeing these as sort of England civil wars to the wars of the three kingdoms. I spent a lot of time as a student and later sort of studying, you know, what Conrad Russell once called the billiard ball effect of an event in Ireland having a knock-on event in England and Scotland. But as I continued, I began to think, wait a minute, this goes much, much further. And partly it was the language that contemporaries would often use to describe events. 
you know, they all knew that the Thirty Years' War had been raging, you know, since 1618 on the continent. In Scotland, many of the covenanting forces had served in those wars for Gustavus Adolphus and others. You know, they brought back many of the recruiting sort of organisational tactics. You know, there were a lot of foreigners involved in the civil wars in its first stages. Then you get the creation of the new model army midway through, and it is predicated on a decision to expunge the English army of strangers. You know, the new model army is conceived by God's own Englishman Cromwell. You know, a much stricter language of English exceptionalism begins to hold sway there. But it just struck me repeatedly how often all sides would fear foreign intervention at some point. That there are these divisions, structures are very weak. This is ripe for another power to intervene. It's probably lucky that the French were consumed by the Fronde in 1640s, because certainly, you know, the French took a deep interest in what was going on. And also, they also felt there was a familial link. I mean, Henrietta Maria is the daughter of France. So one spends a lot of time in Devilland as well, sort of gesturing towards the what ifs. But, you know, what if Prince Henry hadn't died or what if France hadn't been convulsed by the Fronde in the 1640s? But that's an essential part of operating without hindsight. If we're going to put these people back, as you've done so brilliantly, in linear chronological time, then you've got to allow the possibility that things are going to turn out differently. And actually, you mentioned language, and that makes me think of something else, which is about the nature of the sources you're using. I suppose by definition, much of it's not Anglophone. I noticed lots of French sources in your notes and things like that. So how did you go about writing this epic history. What sort of source material were you drawing on? It was mostly diplomatic accounts, many of which were calendared and transcribed, you know, very faithfully in the 19th century, you know, when so much record keeping was undertaken and transcriptions. But... I also wanted to sort of contextualise those diplomats' accounts. I mean, it's also a terrific century just in terms of literature. So, you know, there are names like John Milton or Andrew Marvell, you know, who appear in the text in diplomatic context. You know, Marvell goes as a secretary to Russia in the 1660s. And obviously Milton has a diplomatic role in the English Republic. And, you know, a lot of their prose writings came out of their diplomatic experience you know, Peter Paul Rubens is in London, you know, he gets the commission to paint the banqueting hall. That's because he's there as a diplomat. So I think I was trying to work with the sort of diplomats really at the heart of it, but then also contextualise their writings more broadly. You remind me of a paper I studied as an undergraduate, Literature and Politics, which was absolutely looking from, whether it's from Thomas Wyatt through to Marvell, and thinking about that in the context of the politics of the age, which, of course, is the thing that has stuck with me and led me to this point. So you mentioned earlier that from the point of view of the foreign powers, the English are not people who have executed just one monarch, but they've executed two. So could you talk a bit more about how the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, played into how people outside England would have viewed the execution of her grandson, Charles I. Yes, I mean, initially, going back to the point of the execution themselves, obviously, the English don't think they're executing one of their own monarchs, they're executing somebody else's. But Mary has a very strong hereditary claim to the throne. And for Catholics, if Elizabeth is a heretic bastard, then she's keeping Mary, Queen of Scots out of her throne. There is a seismic reaction to her execution on the continent. I mean, the French, you know, American Scots have been a French queen consort, you know, simply cannot believe that Elizabeth would do such a thing. It's sacrilegious and it's unbelievable. It 
provides a rhetoric. It's not the only reason for the Spanish Armada. But, you know, Elizabeth is someone who has been excommunicated by the Pope. And the Spanish are very quick to say, you know, one execution deserves another. She has put Mary, Queen of Scots, to death. We now need to execute that sort of bill of excommunication and take action. So there's a sort of powerful rhetoric there. It's interesting, too, in the book, you know, how a lot of sort of dead figures then begin to reappear as literary ghosts. So you often get Mary Queen of Scots's ghost sort of hovering over events. And it resurfaces very powerfully at the time of the execution of Charles I. If anything, he's learned from his grandmother's trial. I mean, Charles absolutely refuses to cooperate with the high court that is established to try him. He refuses to enter a plea. In a sense, Mary had valiantly rejected the right of English ministers to try her, but it was done behind closed doors. And eventually she sort of went along with it and sort of entered a plea and then was convicted. I mean, Charles has learned that this is probably not a sensible move, but Charles is most successful in at least shaping his posthumous reputation, which likewise becomes that of a almost a sort of minor saint. And when we think of the images of icon basiliki. Charles gains a huge amount of continental support and it is often framed in the context of, you know, that the English nation is totally out of control. And I think, you know, that's sort of Cromwell's frustration with the Dutch, that there's huge amounts of support for the royalists on account of the illegality of the murder. And Cromwell just thinks, well, they're Republicans, they're Protestants, you know, they should support what we've done. And suppose, as you said earlier, this is the moment that England becomes devil land, becomes hell, as far as the foreigners are concerned. Absolutely. It's interesting reading about the diplomats who are in England in 1649. They really, as most English people, didn't know what was going to happen next. And I think that's what I've tried to do in the middle sort of sections of devil land that looks at the sort of 1649 to 1660 period and moves away from this comfortable notion that it's some kind of interregnum, that we all know it all sort of settles down in the end. And it's really just this anomalous sort of odd number of years to actually think, you know, much more about the complexities. I mean, actually, the Spanish are pretty quick in the end to recognise the Republic and try and get onto good terms. And, you know, one of the depressing things for Charles II and his impoverished, itinerant, exiled court is how quickly other powers start trying to form diplomatic negotiations with the English Republic. And, you know, I've tried to sort of integrate these moments as well that are really remarkable, like the Battle of the Dunes in 1658, towards the latter part of the Protectorate, where you have Charles, Charles II of Scotland, but you have Charles and his two younger brothers, James and Henry, fighting for the Spanish at the Dunes, kind of near Dunkirk, against the French, with a huge number of protectorate soldiers there. So you have a huge number of sort of English soldiers fighting on either side. And it causes real problems with the commanders, because these soldiers start recognising one another and wanting to sort of talk. and say, no, no, you know, you're on different sides. One of you are fighting for the Spanish, and one of you are fighting for the French. And I don't think that's an image of the English Civil Wars or the protectorate that comes readily to mind when we think about the period. I think you're absolutely right. And then we get the restoration and after, of course, what we now call the interregnum, but after also three quarters of a century in which we've had families as a feature of royalty, and then we get to the 1660s and we get to a kind of Tudor-style problem over heirs. How fragile did the Stuart dynasty seem then? I think it felt very fragile at the time of the restoration. I can't remember sort of offhand the months, but, you know, Henry, Duke of Gloucester dies... Princess Mary dies. Having sort of survived the 1660s, the monarchy is then hit with sort of sibling deaths and it really leaves Charles and his younger brother James and his younger sister Henriette Anne in France. And 
the one thing he has to do very quickly, he announces this, is, you know, find a wife. And it is one of the, again, what ifs of the Restoration. I mean, Charles is unique, really, almost Charles II among British monarchs in fathering a large number of natural children and then dignifying them very publicly in a way that hadn't been done. They then became sort of alternative avenues of influence. But the one thing they couldn't do was secure him a succession. And for contemporaries who were hoping that the restoration would bring this sort of return to the old ways and prosperity. By the time you've got through the Great Plague of 1665 and then the Great Fire of London in 1666 and then the Dutch raid on the Medway in 1667 and you've got this king who doesn't seem to be producing a lawful heir but fathering all of these bastard children, you know, there's a real mood of disillusionment very quickly by the end of the 1660s. So one last thing to think about then. I remember that David Cameron gave an infamous speech in which he described Great Britain as the country that had fought off every invader for a thousand years. There were lots of other things wrong in the speech as well, but the one thing (laughs) that that takes our attention here is that you describe the arrival of William of Orange and his armed expedition to England as the first successful foreign invasion of England since the Norman Conquest in 1066. And I thought that was a wonderful way of kind of reframing it, for me at least. I've always thought of it as an invitation. And these remarkable events of, say, 1687 to 89, they really do constitute a forgotten invasion, don't they? So could you talk about that and how it happened? I think if you'd been standing on the shores of Devon and you'd seen this huge seaborne fleet arriving, complete with printing press, complete with lots of soldiers and sailors. This would have appeared not with all of the fears of Hispanophobia that had accompanied the Armada, but nevertheless, a very serious determined attempt. At that point, everybody assumes that this will end in some kind of pitched encounter between William of Orange and his Catholic uncle and father-in-law, James. That doesn't happen. James has his psychosomatic nosebleeds and flees back to London. And in a way, we sort of export that pitched encounter to the Boyne. And I think moving our attention just to the Boyne, where James and William do meet on the battlefield, sort of reminds us as well that all of this is actually only one theatre in a much larger war, really between Louis Fourteenth and what becomes known as the Grand Alliance. And I once remember talking to Tony Clayton, interviewing him for the Stuarts films and asking him, you know, what were William's interests in getting getting involved in English politics. And he said, well, there were three. First was Louis XIV, second was Louis XIV, and third was Louis XIV. And, you know, for William, William of Orange was so haunted by memories of the year of disaster in the Dutch Republic, 1672, when French forces had nearly overrun the country entirely. And the only way in which the Dutch had been able to sort of save themselves was by opening the dike gates and flooding the lands. And that memory of nearly losing his entire country to French occupation really haunted William. And when it then appeared as though his wife's inheritance was being defrauded by James's new baby son in 1688, he had both a dynastic reason to intervene, but also the opportunity to bring on board all of England's financial and military resources. It's really evident how frustrated he is about having to go to Ireland. I mean, he really wants to be back fighting in Flanders and using all this English might to confront Louis Fourteenth, And he eventually does get back there, but he has to go to Ireland first. And from James's point of view, one sort of thinks, well, you know, who was supporting James? I mean, were people really scared by James's attempt to re-Catholicise England? You know, surely Protestantism was so entrenched. But, you know, this was also the era of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. You know, there were lots of French Protestant 
fleeing into London and James was backed by Louis XIV. So I think when people saw James, they saw French dragonade. They saw sort of French power and they saw Louis XIV wanting to be a universal monarch. So, you know, again, I think it's quite hard to see, you know, what we nicely call these invitations to intervene and this glorious revolution solely in English terms. Well, thank you so much for what has been an utterly brilliant and thrilling gallop through a century of history. For those who would like to unpack all of this a little more slowly and in a lot more wonderful detail, I can only urge you to pick up a copy of Devil Land because it is as brilliant as this has been, but a little bit longer. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr Jackson, on this podcast. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Likewise. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.